Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorik Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is the esteemed Jasmine Nicole Cobb, professor of African and African-American studies and of art, art history, and visual studies at Duke University. And she's also the co-director of the From Slavery to Freedom Franklin Humanities Lab. A scholar of Black cultural production and visual representation, Jasmine is the author of two books. The first, titled Picture Freedom, Remaking Black Visuality in the Early 19th Century, and now her second and latest entitled New Growth, The Art and Texture of Black Hair. She is also editor for African American Literature in Transition, 1800 to 1830. Jasmine has written for outlets such as Public Culture, the Multi-Ethnic Literature of the United States, and American Literary History, to name a few. And while she is currently on book tour with her latest book, New Growth, Jasmine is working on her third book, tentatively titled The Pictorial Life of Harriet Tubman, which offers a visual history of the abolitionist from the middle 19th century through the present, including the persistence of her image in contemporary art and popular culture. So we are looking forward to learning more from Jasmine Nicole Cobb. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Right about now. Act one. To adventure. Jasmine, as a proponent of storytelling, I ardently believe that creative, as well as academic, but creative endeavors, broadly speaking, are often autobiographical. And so much of your work, specifically your scholarship, focuses on Black freedom in the 19th and 20th century. Not only the political, but also the personal expressions and representations in private and public spaces. And particularly your work highlights media representations. But I think for you to kind of help our audiences beyond this journey with us, what or who inspired you to become a scholar focused on Black freedom and autonomy? This is such a great question because, you know, we all live with our personal histories and over time it just becomes a part of you and there's not often moments of reflection or pause about what those histories mean in our evolving life stories. When I think about what I do now, what I'm interested in, what my point of view is informed by, I really think of my grandparents, all of whom migrated north from the south, born in the U.S., so part of Great Migration, born the year of the Depression, and present in my multi-generational household growing up, I really lived with a very pronounced sense of politics, of work, of economic equality, of citizenship. These things were just around the table conversations, but also part of the images that circulated in the house that we talked about. So I was very present for, even though I didn't always understand um, these conversations about fairness, about racism, about justice, about the Black experience in the United States. And I think that those things really shaped how I entered the archive, what I thought of archival material, my understanding that there is a longing that really animates Black life in America. 
And I think it's how I, I enter any period, any subject. What are these folks after or what are they trying to hold on to? I'm curious specifically around the visuals because a lot of your work your scholarship is around the visual representation. So when you were growing up, what were some of the visuals that really helped to inform the lens in which you choose to explore the topics today? I mean, was there something from television, print ad, pictures, just in terms of how relatives were represented in family, photo albums? Like, what was it about the visuality? All of those things. I think the popular culture material is what stood out to me the most. So like many Black households in the late 20th century, there were Ebony and Jet magazines around. So Johnson Publishing Archive was essential to the images that I experienced. I was an avid TV watcher. Um, like many of us were before <laughs> there was a discussion of managing screen time. So I watched pretty much any representation of Black people on television. This was a time at the end of the 20th century where people made phone calls. Roots is on tonight. And so that was a sort of collective viewing across households. At home and in school, I watched constantly every year. It came on Eyes on the Prize, the PBS documentary about civil rights struggles and the radical Black freedom movement in the middle 20th century. So lots of Black protest imagery as told through these other um, storytelling platforms, anything remotely related to slavery was sort of collective viewing, but also, you know, joyous and prideful representations like in Ebony and Jet, sort of material culture. Um, by the time I was a, a, a girl consuming popular culture, I would call it good fortune. My family was adamant about Black dolls. We had, if we were going to have a Cabbage Patch or a Barbie, it was a, a Black doll. Um, there were family photographs around. That was a big thing. Or dressing, such as for Easter, for example, specifically for the sake of taking a picture. So yeah, I think there was a sort of a big emphasis on representation in life and in consumption. And so this next question really comes from your first book, but you talk a lot about throughout your scholarship and your work, you talk about Black freedom. So how do you define Black freedom and what does it mean to be free, particularly within the context of, well, how can one visually represent their freedom to others? Mm, I feel like this is something I'm still looking for the answer for, even two, two books into my writing life. I think of Black freedom as an extra institutional experience. So while there are so many ways in which Black freedom is defined by institutions, fairness at work, citizens' rights, voting, so on and so forth. When I think about what I'm looking for when I'm researching Black freedom, what I'm trying to experience myself or what I hope for my kids to experience, I'm really thinking about autonomy and questions of self-perception. That's not to say that institutional relations don't matter, but that they're not definitive because we can think of examples where 
And these extend to popular culture as well, where we see people of African descent perhaps gaining ground within institutions, even being the president, for example, Mm -hmm. and still appear constrained by others' expectations or actual material limitations put on their power. So when I'm looking for and thinking about Black freedom, I'm thinking about the experience of autonomy, the ability to perceive oneself outside of dominant norms of looking at Blackness and how that way of being can then inform cultural practices, ways of being, and ways of moving through the world. I think one of the things that you raise in your work is particularly because there's a focus on visuality as you are threading through history and giving the readers context. But you talk about contesting the white gaze Mm -hmm. in the predominant white visual culture. And as you're also documenting these shifts in terms of the ways in which African descendants demonstrate their own agency, as we see it in popular culture, in terms of our material consumption of different things and so forth. I'm I'm curious, as a scholar, is the Black gaze different from, or is it in many ways a reification of the white gaze? Right. Because on the one hand, you're talking about autonomy, talking about the ways in which people are choosing to define for themselves freedom that are contextual to the time in which they've living in their context, their backgrounds, all these other things. But it's in contrast or it's always juxtaposed with the intra and interinstitutional confines in which we live in. It's complicated because I definitely talk about them in distinct ways. And I I think they are distinct, even as they are somehow conjoined. There's a constant interaction between when it comes to the Black subject, the Black subject's understanding of herself and the white subject's understanding of the Black subject. But I think what is enduring thing that I find, whether I'm looking at Frederick Douglass in the 19th century or activists, Black activists in the 21st century, is while Black subjects are able to repeat and sometimes reify the white gaze, right, have this sort of anti-Black position on the Black subject, on the Black self, people theorize self-hate and taking on this sort of other view. I think what endures over time is that Black subjects are often aware of how they are viewed by whites. And I don't think the inverse is the same. What do you mean by that? Can you give us an example? So Frederick Douglass knows that white people view him a particular way. And that sometimes he uses that to his advantage and sometimes he is consumed by it. But it's not until something like his letter to my old master that he writes and publishes in his own newspaper that Thomas Ald, his master, has an opportunity to take in how Frederick views him. So there's this way in which Black subjects, by the nature of colonial contact and the consequences of slavery, really don't get very far in life before we have to have an understanding of how white people view us. And so while sometimes there are things that a Black gaze has in common with a white gaze, I think a a defining distinction is an understanding of how one is viewed from the outside. And I think this gives us many of our sort of canonic theories of Blackness, the veil, 
a double consciousness, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. You know, it's sort of on and on again where Black cultural producers are contending with this idea that how they see themselves is not in line with how white society sees them. But when the inverse is a topic of conversation, what white society understands about how Black society views it it falls flat. We often get these kind of cartoonish portrayals, something like the horrible movie, The Help, where there's this inability to take seriously what a Black perception of whiteness is, or to use Franz Fanon the, or any other historical example, the white image in the Black mind, as Mia Bay talks about. There is a, a real difficulty for the other side to sort of take that in and take it seriously. And I think that is the distinct between the two. It's the issue of awareness about an alternative perception. I mean, it reminds me of a framework that I developed and started to focus on in my book, this concept of triple identity consciousness. So mm -hmm. it kind of, it extends the voices, double consciousness, but it gives the African descendant agency where I yeah. think that as he was framing it, mind you, it's at the turn of the 20th century. So he mm -hmm. didn't really frame it in that way. He was kind of, in my opinion, just sort of stuck in, here's white, see me, and I see the white, see me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm, I argue that no there's a third layer of analysis of awareness that yeah. says well you know and I understand how you see me see you seeing me but mm -hmm. here's how I'm going to engage in other kinds of agency and mm -hmm. philanthropy and engagement and activism so mm -hmm. I think even in your example and citing to Frederick Douglass and that letter like that's actionable. That's asserting a kind of agency and awareness that's beyond, oh, this is how white people see me. It's mm -hmm. no, let me tell you how I actually use the same tropes and identifiers and characteristics, how I exploit them mm -hmm. in ways that gives me agency or I don't, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of choice that's in there because it's important to say when we're talking about just the representation of freedom and, and autonomy, that there's agency in that and how people are able to subvert all these different structures that we live within. Absolutely. So when it comes to storytelling, and we all know that every picture has like a thousand words, what does it mean to be in the archives to tell a more positive or to tell more positive African descendant stories than what may not be accurately represented? For you and a lot of your work, you're in the archives. So what are some of the challenges and opportunities you face when trying to uncover, recover and tell these more positive stories of African descendant life and personhood. I feel like that is a very much a value for me. So I appreciate this question. You know, I try to sit with all of it and see all of it. Those things that make me squirm and those things that make me cheer the writing is my opportunity to put it together in a way that is useful for myself and others. One of the hardest things I've ever encountered in an archive was mortgages on people. Whites looking to buy Blacks had to get credit to purchase human beings. 
And it stays with me. So as much as I care about the positive storytelling, I needed to see that stuff so that it could then inform how I read what Douglas does or what Tubman does. I think that in the stories I tell in the writing, I really try to find things as close to first person as possible. Douglas writing in his own newspaper, writing by African-Americans, even if it's as told too, because unfortunately, the saying history is told by the masters, there's no end of paper in the archives, mortgages on people, sales of selling a whole plantation with livestock and humans because the owner is belly up and cash strap, right? I can find tons of paperwork like that. And that paperwork helps me read the urgency in a first person story. But what I want to do is help produce more paper in circulation of the first person story so that for people who can easily get access to credit and receipt books and all of these sort of really hurtful, harmful, but necessary documents that further outline what slavery was. I hope that my work helps to create interest and makes it easier to also find what was the first person account. How did this person convey who they were and what they saw and what they experienced? And sometimes that's in written documents. For me, more often it's in pictures and learning to read a picture, not just the obvious, the scars on Peter Gordon's back, but also his hair and his posture and his picture at the Union camp. So just trying to find ways to not dismiss what is hard to sit with, but not to mistake that for the whole of Black people's stories. And your ability to recover. It's a descriptor and not a name of this African descendant, but Mm -hmm. by you highlighting you're recovering and you're bringing to light their existence that yeah. had been previously rendered invisible. Yes, that they existed. And Sadia Hartman talks about this. So many people that we just can't get to because they're just a note about jumped overboard or something. And so speculation is part of the project, but also using what's available to help me know them or to help me know the scoundrels and people who made it harder to get closer to these people. Hey folks, enjoying this episode so far? Well, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out on IG at journeysb2b underscore podcast and share your comments about favorite guests or ideas for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe and like the show wherever you listen to podcasts. We're aiming for that five-star rating. Now back to the episode. Be what you want to see. Act two, the road. Jasmine, I very much enjoyed reading your latest book, New Growth. The Art and Texture of Black Hair, which debuted last month. So for those listening, please go out and buy your copy. 
When I read the book, I thought it's a great meditation on hair, identity, and personal experiences via visual representation. So the book, in my opinion, does two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it's a critical analysis of images found in the archives as they exist in the ways Black hair, and particularly natural hair, is represented as a symbol, an ethos, and even as a thing to embody and possess. And then on the other hand, the book is an archive itself in that it captures the varied shifts in culture that help to inform the visuality and perceptions of Black hair in popular culture. So here's what I think about Black hair. I think Black hair conveys information about African-descended people, their experiences and the conditions in which they live, right? So you talk about Peter and the conditions of his hair, even though that wasn't necessarily the focus of the picture, it was more so the markings, the scarification from the whip. I like to think of Black hair is a record of our hope, our individuality, and of our atrocities, that the grooming of Black hair is also a demonstration of self-care and pride and expression of love and community. So with all that being said about Black hair, what is your personal relationship with your own hair? And how did you come to learn, experience, and express Blackness through your hair? I don't know why I didn't think about how much I would be talking about my own hair and writing this book, but the book prepared me to do this. My hair journey, I think, is in league with many other Black women I know. I've had all the styles, all, all the Black lady styles of the last 40-something years. So braids, holly berries, tapered cut. I never had a salt and pepper thing going on, but I, I always have admired it. I stopped chemically straightening my hair in the early 2000s. And when I think back on that time, I had started this research then, but I didn't know I was doing this. You know, like I was just going to things, hair shows, watching stuff on the internet that was gaining popularity about natural hair. And I also was starting to see at the time ads on public transit to join studies looking for a link between fibroids and chemical straighteners. That's kind of eerie to me now, 20 years later, to think about that research going on. But I think my hair journey was sort of connected to these questions of aesthetics and freedom and self-definition that, that many Black women talk about around appearance and beauty. The doing of hair for Black people writ large is an interesting baptism into Blackness, if you will. Can we lean into that a little bit more? What What do you mean? Give us some examples of that. It's visiting barber shops or braid shops or Dominican hair salons or black hair salons. What you know, whatever it is, I think it's the practice of being touched and groomed by other black people really brings folks into their Blackness in a way. And it's all of it. I think it's the actual doing of the hair, the braiding, the perming, the hot combing that people talk about at the kitchen table. But it's also the conversations that happen in the space about politics, about gossip, but just also the practice of being. Like I had a friend who was unfamiliar 
with the Black Hair Salon experience. And her coming with me helped me to see it as opposed to just be in it. So I'll give you an example. She went with me. I said, oh, I'm going to get my hair done. Would you like to come with me? She's like, sure. And I was like, okay, first I got to pick up my food and then we'll go. And she's like, (laughs) you bring food to the hair? I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't know how long I'll be there. I, I have to have food with me. I think all of those things are part of the experience and expression of Blackness and the learning, for lack of a better word, sort of Black ways of communicating with other Black people, communicating about the self, and however one wears their hair, whether it's straight or not, I think is really a part of that. So tell us a little bit more about your focus on natural hair specifically. My fixation with Afro-textured hair, I don't subscribe to the notion that what I did before I stopped straightening my hair was somehow anti-Black, right? Like that, those things were Black too. The straightening, the burning was part of the Black experience. Um, But I think when I stopped using chemical straighteners, it sort of helped me make that world new. And it helped make the, the culture something I was learning differently or seeing with fresh eyes. And got you to think differently and critically about some of the behaviors and practices that we would engage in as part of the culture. Right. That I stopped taking certain things for granted. Not just, okay, you straighten your hair before Easter Sunday. But what is that? And why is that? And why is all of that strife sort of worth it for Easter in particular, as an example? What was that turning point for you when you stopped straightening your hair and began to think about just your own hair journey as it relates to even your scholarship journey? I started all of this in Philadelphia, which I think is just a great hair city, you know, for experimentation and things like that. What was it about Philly that allowed that as opposed to someplace else? That's a good question. Much of what you see in terms of options for hair care in Philly, it's no different than what you might see throughout the Northeast, the New York tri-state area. But I do think Philadelphia segregation is a little bit different. And so what do you mean? Are you talking about the geospatial locations of some of these spaces? Because in New York, and you know me, I'm from Brooklyn, everything's close together. You have the African hair braider down the road from the Dominican hair shop, which is down the road from the African-American hair salon. Everything spatially is different than what I assume happens in Philly. For instance, entering a Dominican hair salon in New York or New Jersey really wasn't that big of a deal. Afro-Latinos and Black people interacted much more readily, I found, again, because of how segregation works in Philadelphia. Probably say the same for African hair salons that Philadelphia set up to sort of not just at that time, push immigrants to the outskirts of the city, but then to segregate them from one another. So then to go in search of a particular kind of hair salon, you had to journey to a particular neighborhood. It wasn't just sort of, in contrast, for example, the experience of being in Harlem and all of these things are present within a few blocks of one another and you just sort of choose what you choose that day. 
Well, it's pretty cool when you think about it that here you were going along on your hair journey while simultaneously going on your own journey to learn and explore not just yourself, but who you are in this new city. Yeah, it had to be deliberate in a way. It wasn't just sort of casually and readily available. I should add, I was in graduate school at this time. So the spaces I occupied as a student were really curated by my institution. I think also the early 2000s, this sort of growth and popularity of online communities discussing hair and what to do with hair is kind of a reemergence of natural hair as again popular. In the book, I try to talk about that new popularity is not so much just about the newness, again, of textured hair, but also the newness of communication platforms to follow a blog about how to care for hair or to be in an online forum that's all about hair. I think that these kinds of things were just creating new forms of community around something that was kind of old hat of what to do with Black hair. I also like what you talk about in terms of what you write in the book around what Black hair or hair communicates. In many ways, of course, hair communicates not only your generation, right? So when you're talking about the salt and pepper hair, that's very specific to a generation of folks that would know it. But it also speaks to a person's identity, their genders, sexuality, and even their politics. So even given the public space of hair salons and barbershops being a place where people are talking about politics and community and mobilization and that sort of thing, the actual hairstyling, I think in many ways speaks to one's politics. And so your book highlights the dual hypervisibility and invisibility of Blackness. And you specifically talk about the nuances around the gendering of hair. So in the way natural Black hair is subjected to the white patriarchal gaze. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because you talk about it in the sense of, well, natural hair, according to the white patriarchal gaze, it's masculine. It might connote notions around this person must be an activist. They're earthy. They're these things. And so if you kind of take that same sort of framework and apply it to, say, females with natural hair, all of a sudden she's masculinized. So she's hard. Now she's militant. And even still, she's unattractive because it's unfeminine. In what ways do you think the Black gaze reifies the white gaze in this relation? Because I can see it in some of the ads, dark and lovely. You know, the hair has to be flowing versus the Afro sheen, but then everyone looks like a Black Panther. Like, what are we talking about? What responsibility does art and Black art play in this representation of Black hair in the media? Because I think that's essentially what I'm talking about. What I found as an interesting through line around sort of gender politics and natural hair is that I I think there's a distinction between how things sort of unfolded and the story that was being created about the unfolding at the same time. So middle 20th century, by the time a publication like Ebony Magazine gets on board with natural hair as a thing and promotes it as a Black man thing in particular, they're already late. 
you know, Black women have already been wearing um, short afros and natural hair, not just activists, but women like Nina Simone, Odessa, and other Black women musicians. So the idea that natural hair is masculine is not only contrived, but it's, it's contrived late in the story of natural hair. And I think that is about, as you flag, the pursuit of a white patriarchal norm is created for the promotion of certain values and the ascertainment of other forms of power. Erica Edwards, Hazel Carby, people who have written about Black men and political power. We see this thing kind of stick around, as you mentioned, in the present in 21st century discussions of natural hair. I like to say that when people are interested in natural hair still being long and flowing and kind of soft and smooth. It's the same thing. It's still the pursuit of European standards of beauty. What I love about the artists who are making works about hair and how they intervene in this problem, you know, someone like Lorna Simpson, who collages and makes works drawing from Ebony Magazine and Johnson Publishing Archive. For one, I love their reverence of cutting up that material, even as she's embracing the material. But I think what artists do is really show us how all of this is made up. What do you mean by that? We kind of think and assign to the surface of the Black exterior is a construction and thus we are free to construct it any way that we choose, that there are not sort of these obligations or dictates about how we must construct it. I think Ellen Gallagher does something similar with the same archive by taking it and making it unfamiliar, um, sometimes absurd through other things she applies to it, plastic eyeballs and glitter and all of these sorts of things. They have a way of really showing us that whatever theory we have about what a Black exterior must be, it is something we we have created, that there isn't something inherently more feminine about smooth and long hair than a short, tight afro. That is a story that we might want to tell, but for those who want to tell that story, they are really reifying other ideas of Blackness that have not served cis Black men any more than they have served cis Black women. In your book, New Growth, you provide readers with very pretty images that help to capture these imagistic and ideological shifts that you're talking about that coincide with the ways individuals are choosing to assert Blackness as both personal and political. Yet what looms for me is the omnipresence of racist capitalism. We see this in the ethos of buying Black. And I would say there was an uptick, especially during COVID and putting forth hashtag Black Lives Matter, really utilizing a Black nationalist appeal to advance our consumerism. But then second, we we see this shift with, and I'm going to call them the other. So these are non-African descended people fashioning their hair to emulate the African aesthetic. And I think that's always the tension when people talk about protecting and having protective Black hairstyles. How do we reconcile, if possible, the expropriation of Black hair aesthetic when there's always been exploitative appraisals of Black interiority in public spaces? How do we make sense of the willingness to put on Blackness again in the form of hairstyle? 
even while at the same time, we're contributing to the materiality of it in the marketplace. You know, and then that's when you have people who are like, oh, well, I'm an aficionado of cornrows because they see it. (laughs) And so therefore they're like, well, I like it. Then I should be able to, in my privilege, wear this Mm -hmm. aesthetic. In many ways, it's exploitative because if there are certain value systems that are assigned to certain things, it's more than just, oh, that looks cute. But there is meaning. There is meaning. And, you know, I always think of Eric Lott's phrase, love and theft, because it is it is a theft. You know, it, it, it might be an appreciation, but it's also a theft. One of the things that I thought about in writing this book is that I really want to find a, a helpful way to to articulate why not everyone can lock their hair. And I spend a lot of time... <laughs> In the book, writing about the experiences of African descended people with locked hair in various places around the world. And I think what is important for people to know is that regardless of if your hair can lock and what are the things someone might have to do or not do to their hair in order to get it locked, a defining experience for people of African descent who have locked their hair is state persecution, Mm -hmm. right? So the political and spiritual significance that people of African descent often, not all, often ascribe to their locked hair is unique to people of African descent. Not everyone has been persecuted by the government, the media supporting that persecution in the way that people of African descent have. And so I think the love is great, accepting that you might love something and still not be able to participate in it, I think is really about taking seriously not only one's privilege, but the sort of meanings and histories that are imbued in certain aesthetic practices. Sometimes one just has to say, I love it. I wish I could. I can't because that thing is not about me. We do it all the time in society and different ways we appreciate things, but have to show respect. And hair is this thing that um, weirdly mimics that, right? Like you go into a museum, you love a painting, the surface is textured, you can see it. You know, you can get up close to it. You can take a picture of it, but you cannot touch it, Mm. right? Black hair is the same way. You can see it. You can love it. You can be deeply curious about it, but you should not touch it or ask. You shouldn't ask either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so funny that you talk about that because, you know, art imitates life and life imitates art and just even our treatment and how we conceive and conceptualize it. But I think also in your book, New Growth, you talk about art in many different ways and whether it's through the medium of photography and the use of grayscale, which you talk about. Uh, You also speak to film or even craft art. You take us through the various ways creatives have communicated the visual and the tactile sentiments of Black hair and the ways in which it's infused with history, geography, religion, all those things to really be reflective of the diversity of the people who wear it and to showcase it. Talk to us about the book's cover art entitled Jet Double, sitting by Lorna Simpson. Why this image versus others? With some of the things I 
have said this with this book, I felt guided towards certain things that I didn't really understand. The title is the same thing. I had the title before I was really clear about what I was up to. I've been kind of playing catch up to why I was compelled towards some of the choices I made. What I love about the image is, for starters, the blur. The double kind of gives us this two-ness, but also just this way of making it almost unfamiliar, right? That you have to sort of steady yourself to take in what you're seeing. And I think that's a way of sort of giving them more texture to the figure and to her hair, her double. So Lorna Simpson, a conceptual artist, often includes text in her images. And the interesting thing is that I don't think there's always an obvious connection between the image and the text in it. It's sort of up to the viewer to sort of make a connection. Mm-hmm. But that she included this text and turned it upside down, it was just all part of unsettling what would otherwise be a sort of familiar image. I think that without her intervention, I might look at this and think back to Ebony or Jet. There's something about the woman, her posture. It reminds me of the archive and the moment in time, even though I couldn't quite be sure. Then the text, which may or may not have appeared anywhere near this woman in the original issue, maybe not even the same issue, but all of it together just combines to sort of give me something familiar and make it wholly unfamiliar to me at the same time. Well, to be honest, This, in many ways, speaks to your profound appreciation of the greater body of Lorna Simpson's work in its totality. What I've seen Lorna Simpson do with Black hair and her body of work, but also the other artists I talk about in the book, what I see is this kind of similar thing, this thing that I've known my whole life through the kitchen hair styling, the journeys to the braiding salons and all of that, and yet make it unfamiliar because they kind of made me question how I came to know what I knew about Black hair. And And how'd you know? I came to know all of that partially through how it looked, but more importantly, through the experience of having my own hair done and in the touching and the feeling and the sort of being in it. So I think the picture really kind of brought all of those things together for me. And so when I think about how you've just talked about Lorna, presumably for you, she's amongst those artists that in our contemporary time, using art and images to really push forward Black liberation. How do you think these efforts push forward and to subvert and to really challenge these cultural models different from previous periods where artists in the past have been constantly engaged in this same sort of work? I'm still understanding what new artists are doing now and where they're going. I definitely see what happens in Black visual culture in line with my work, which is oscillating around a long Black freedom struggle. There's a constant struggle for freedom and there's a constant making and cultural production that exists around it that is not solely preoccupied with that exclusively, but has to work along with it, you know, and exist in spite of it. 
in some time. So the, the hair artists that I write about, in addition to Lorna Simpson and Ellen Gallagher, uh, Sonia Clark, who's making work and includes Black women who braid hair. She gives us their faces in the work. I think that's a part of this, forcing us to, to see the people behind the aesthetic. Alison Saar and her inclusion, what would otherwise be cast off as junk in the making of her work is sort of forcing us to deal with history is ongoing. We don't leave things in the past and move into the future. And I think contemporary artists, uh, whether that legacy feels pronounced and at the forefront of their work or not, I think it absolutely is. But certain things endure and that is the history that carries us all to where we're going and helps us do the work that we want to do. And then, you know, the ongoing struggle to survive and exist and live autonomous lives as people of African descent. What do you hope readers will take away from this book? Are there particular actionable steps that you would want African descendants and others to take when it comes to visual representations and culture of Black hair? I'm thinking more so for the readers. Should they talk about legislating healing and freedom and justice via the Crown Act? Are you trying to spark political activism and engagement? Is it around patronizing and supporting particular museum and art exhibits? Like, what would you want folks to take away from New Growth? I hope that New Growth helps people have a sort of both and approach to Black hair that, yes, we need the Crown Act, right? We need to put penalties on discrimination that happen where hair is concerned. But the law has never been the only facet for remedy for people of African descent, that there's also a need for awareness and appreciation and understanding. So I hope new growth helps people understand all that goes into the significance of Black hair for Black people, even apart from the Crown Act. And then I hope even if you're not willing to understand or can't understand, you support the Crown Act in absence of understanding that we understand discrimination shouldn't be. But if you know this history, then you absolutely take into consideration how we got to that discrimination in the first place. And last, I hope that in league with all of my colleagues writing and thinking about art, that we think about art to cite Sarah Lewis as relevant to justice as we define it. That art is not, you know, just about pleasure and appreciation somehow separated from the sort of hard stuff of life, but that it is part of it and it is a route to freedom, autonomy, self-expression, appreciation, and all of those sort of good things that life has to offer. Get it, get it. Act three, where we land. So Jasmine, we've reached the point in the program where I invite my guests to talk about any upcoming projects. I know that you have, you're working on a new book called The Pictorial Life of Harriet Tubman. If you are ready to speak on that, or if you just want to show us a little bit of ankle, but not the full leg, that'd be great. But then more importantly, if you're on tour, where are you going to be next and talking about new growth? Even more specifically, where can people find you to keep up with all the happenings? 
The pictorial life of Harriet Tubman is something I've been thinking about for a long time. It is a project that explores how Tubman's image in her afterlife has been so powerful and significant and different from how her image circulated during her life. And what can we take away? What can we learn? What else is there to know about African-American images in the 19th century, but also Blackness and iconicity now? There's been no shortage of works by her, by canonic artists, by up-and-coming artists. She was famously supposed to be on the $20 bill, and that is stalled, to say the least. I'm really curious about why and how what we get to know about her through this treatment of her image. So that's what's next. I will be making rounds. New Growth will be at an arts event in Florida in February. I'll have a flyer available for that, which I will share on socials where people can find me at Jasmine Cobb PhD on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much. And we learned so much. So folks, please go out and purchase and read and take in the beauty that is New Growth by Dr. Jasmine Nicole Cobb. Thank you so much for being with us here on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Thank you so much. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.